<laughs> Books, a vast source of knowledge and entertainment. When it comes to reading, I'm a man of facts, not fiction. Did you know ancient Chinese warriors would show off their juggling skills before battle? Or that male lizards show off by doing push-ups? You're doing great. The Eiffel Tower varies as much as six inches in height, depending on temperature. Cinderella originally didn't wear glass slippers. She wore fur ones. <laughs> you see, fact can be stranger than fiction, and the truth can surprise even me. And when it comes right down to it, sometimes, it's hard to believe. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Eagle Church. So good to have you with us this weekend at our campuses and watching online as well. We are in the second week of a series called It's Hard to Believe. And last week, I talked about the struggle to believe that Jesus Christ will return to this earth one day. If you've ever doubted that you're going to wake up and see Christ returning in all of his glory, I would encourage you to watch that message online. Today's message is titled, It's Hard to Believe in Absolute Truth. Several months ago, I visited my first grade son, Hudson, at his school for lunch and for recess. And I love going to recess. It's very good for my self-esteem. Last time I was there, we were playing football. And I had the most incredible one-handed pick-six interception, all while holding my three-year-old son, Jasper, in my other arm. I was surprised it didn't make SportsCenter's top 10 plays of the week. I mean, I'm telling you, I am domination station when it comes to playing football with first graders. This week, we were playing kickball, but we didn't have any bases, and so we just drew some in the sand with our finger and then divided up the teams. The first kid up kicked one out towards right field. There was a race to first base, and he was safe, except the kid with the ball said, no, you're not on the base. The kicker looked down. He said, I can't see the base. He was right. It had gotten washed out as they were running towards first. The fielder then took the ball, jammed it into the kicker's chest, and said louder this time, you're out. Before a full-on brawl broke out, I stepped in as umpire. I said, no, he's safe. Just give it to him. You can't really see the base. I was up next. I went easy on him. I kicked a little dribbler out towards shortstop. And the kid in front of me stopped on second base, and they tried calling him out again. This time, every single kid on the field was screaming their head off in first grade kickball. I said to my son, Hudson, I said, what do you do when I'm not here to play umpire? He said, oh, it's crazy. He said, everyone just yells. There's this one kid who gets so mad, he kind of bows up on you and bumps you with his chest when he's really angry. He said, usually the loudest kid ends up getting his way. Later on that day, I was on my Facebook page, and my whole feed was taken up by articles and blogs about Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner and Josh Duggar. The comments section was visceral. I mean, I can't even repeat to you most of what was said, especially about Josh Duggar, actually, because it was so harsh. One commentator called another commentator a judgmental imbecile. The irony of that amused me just a little bit. But as I'm reading through this, I thought to myself, this is an adult kickball game with no umpire. Everybody's mad. Everybody has an opinion, everyone is yelling, and usually it's the loudest adults who get their way. In fact, we live in a culture right now that feels like a kickball game with no umpire. 
No one can see the basis of truth. They've been washed away by decades of Americans who have rejected any form of absolutes. Everything is gray. Everything is up to the individual. In the book of the Bible called Judges, it describes people this way. It says, everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. That's pretty similar to America today. One person says, I'm on the base. Another person says, no, you're not. But who gets to decide? Who's the umpire? Who gets to decide what's true? You have at least three options when answering that question. Your first option is this, I do, right? I decide what's right and I decide what's wrong. This is the approach that most of us would like to take. In fact, you'll even hear people these days say things like this. They'll say, well, what's true for you isn't true for me. Every time I hear that statement, I think to myself, really? Because if both of us jump out of an airplane without a parachute, what's true for you is going to be true for me as well. And when you start applying that statement to everyday life, it doesn't make as much sense. Or you'll hear people say, you know, I just need to do what makes me happy. In other words, I get to decide my own code of ethics. I get to decide my own morality. And if it makes me happy, well, then it's true. And isn't that convenient? I mean, if I get to decide what's right and what's wrong, then guess what? I'm always right, and you're always wrong, as long as you disagree with me. It's pretty similar to the Miley Cyrus approach. Miley Cyrus was recently interviewed, and in that interview, she said, you know, I think people should just do what seems right to them, as long as it's two consenting adults who aren't hurting anyone else. Now, on the surface of things, that seems pretty logical, doesn't it? But let's think about this for a moment. Let's take drug use. Somebody who's using drugs, they would probably say, well, I'm not hurting anyone else, but you're hurting yourself. You're hurting society because you're less of a contributor than you could be. You're probably going to rely on addiction recovery centers, counselors, hospitals, some sort of government assistance at some point to get you out of this. You're hurting your family members and friends who love you and are watching you spiral downhill. You see, it's not so easy just to say, well, I'm not hurting anyone else. Prostitution is another example. Prostitution involves two consenting adults, consenting for different reasons, but they're both consenting. Does that mean that prostitution is no longer a sin? I, mean, I would say no. Be very careful of basing your views of what's true on what seems right to you. The second option that you have is this, trends. Let's take a vote. Let's have an opinion poll. Let's see what the majority of Americans believe about this issue. Well, 51% of Americans believe that this activity is a sin. Okay, then I believe that as well. Wait a minute, what was that? Only 49% believe it's a sin now? Well, I'm going to have to rethink my position then too. Here's the problem with this. History has never been kind to trendy truth. What's popular today may not be popular 200 years from now. In fact, even if you say that you're basing your views of truth on what a majority of Americans believe, that's still subjective to your time and your culture. For example, what if a majority of Germans, underneath the leadership of Adolf Hitler, believed that killing Jewish people was morally acceptable? Would that make it so? No. 
be very careful of basing your views of truth on what a majority of people believe at that time and in that culture. Here's a third option that you would have. The Bible. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, of course. You know, we're in church. I knew he was going to get to the Bible here at some point. Or you might think, you know, the Bible, that, that is such an old and outdated book. Former pastor Rob Bell recently chastised Christians for quoting from letters 2,000 years old. He's like, these are letters from 2,000 years ago. They have no relevance to our life today. And maybe you think the same thing. Maybe you think the Bible is an old and outdated kind of book. Or maybe you think, you know, I've heard the Bible's filled with contradictions and translation errors. Hardly the kind of thing you'd want to base your life on. Or maybe you think, you know, I've, I think the Bible has some good moral teaching. But let's be honest here, it, it's fairy tales and myths. All that stuff didn't really happen. At the beginning of this year, Newsweek ran a cover article called The Bible, So Misunderstood It's a Sin. Now, when I first saw that article, I thought, wow, how cool is that? Newsweek is writing an article to clear up some of these misconceptions that people have about the Bible. But two pages in, I thought to myself, who wrote this? Because there were about four or five factual errors that I knew that no New Testament scholar would make. So I googled the author, and I found out he was an editor for Vanity Fair magazine. No biblical education, no degree, not a professor of New Testament or Old Testament, an editor for Vanity Fair who had never written anything substantial about the Bible in his life. It showed, let me read to you one of the quotes from this article. He said this, The Bible is loaded with contradictions, translation errors, and wasn't written by eyewitnesses, but unknown scribes who injected church orthodoxy. Ben Witherington, who's an actual New Testament scholar, wrote in response, that's not just misleading, that is historically and factually incorrect. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to show you why you can trust the Bible as your supreme authority for life. Why the Bible contains absolute truth upon which you can base your family and build your life. Why the Bible is historically reliable. In fact, let's start there. Let me give you three reasons why the Bible is historically reliable. The first one is this. The Bible has archaeological support. If the Bible was historically unreliable, we would expect to find new archaeological discoveries over the last couple thousand years that contradict what was taught in the Bible. In fact, the opposite is true. Archaeology keeps confirming the Bible. Now, I don't have time to give you a lot of examples about this, but let me just show you one. Luke writes this in Luke chapter 3. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, the ruler of Galilee, his brother Philip, the ruler of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Folks, that is the payoff of years of seminary right there. <laughs> Learning how to pronounce those names. That's job security number one for me. Now, here's my question for you. How concerned was Luke with historical detail? I would say he's very concerned with it. 
This is not the kind of language that you hear in fairy tales or myths. It doesn't say, once upon a time, the word of God came to John. It doesn't say, in a land far, far away, the word of God came to John. Luke is historically precise. In fact, all of those names that I just read to you have been confirmed as real people who ruled during that time from sources outside of the Bible. But here is the question. Many years, scholars doubted what Luke had written because of this man, Lysanias. The historical records show that he ruled later than Luke said that he did. But then several years ago, an archaeological discovery was made that described Lysanias being the ruler of Abilene from 14 to 29 AD. Turns out there were two Lysaniases, and Luke got it right. Again and again, archaeology has confirmed what was written in the Bible, to the point where leading archaeologist Nelson Gluck, he says this. He says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a single biblical reference. Not one discovery has ever contradicted one biblical reference. He goes on and he says, Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Let's contrast this to some other religious books. The Book of Mormon, for example, claims to detail events that took place in the Americas between the years of 600 B.C. to 400 A.D. However, the Smithsonian Institute says that they have no archaeological evidence whatsoever to prove the Book of Mormon's claims. In other words, no Book of Mormon city has ever been located, no Book of Mormon inscription or artifact has ever been dug up, no Book of Mormon name nation, person, or place has ever been found. Nothing that would give evidence to the fact that the Book of Mormon is anything other than myth. The Bible, like no other book, has archaeological support. Second reason why the Bible is historically accurate is this. The Bible was accurately translated. See, most people, when they think about how the Bible was translated, they think it was one of those games of telephone that you played as a kid. So you get in a circle of people, and one person would say, Bob Merritt is the senior pastor of Eagle Brook Church. And by the time it gets around the circle, it's Senior Bob shoots eagles by the brook while humming the tune to Take Me to Church. I mean, it just gets all messed up and garbled. And so that's what people think when it comes to the Bible. They think, who knows what the original said? It was just scribe telling scribe telling scribe, and it just all got messed up. But is that true? Well, historians look for two criteria. The first one is, how many manuscripts do we have? Because then you can compare them to one another. And then the second is, how far away from the original were those manuscripts dated? With that in mind, let's take a look at how the Bible stacks up to some other ancient documents. A man named Julius Caesar wrote a book called The Gaelic Wars, and we have 10 copies of that that date 1,000 years from the original. Historians consider that quite accurate. Then a guy named Pliny the Younger, nephew to Pliny the Older. I'm serious, that was really his name. Very lazy back then, like, I don't know, Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger wrote a book called Natural History. 
And we have seven copies of that that date from 750 years to the original. Here's a final one. It's pretty famous. Homer's Iliad. We have a whopping 600 copies of that that date 1,000 years from the original. Now, how does the Bible stack up to this? What would make you feel good? If we have 10 of Julius Caesar, would 15 of the Bible make you feel pretty good? Maybe 700 just to beat Homer's Iliad? According to Bruce Metzger, who is an expert on this from Princeton University, we have 24,000 copies of the New Testament, some of which date 50 years from the original. That is completely unheard of in antiquity. This has caused historians to say that the Bible that you hold in your hand is 99.5% pure. What they mean is when you compare manuscripts that are 50 years old to 100 to 500, they begin to match up. And that 0.5% is just like a word missing or a letter missing, nothing that affects doctrine or the story of the Bible. The Bible you have in your hand is an accurate translation. Here's a third reason why the Bible is historically reliable. The Bible contains eyewitness accounts. Let's say you wanted some information about the Civil War. Would you trust a document that was written 150 years after the war by people who weren't there? Or would you trust a document that was written 30 years after the war by eyewitnesses? Not a trick question. Of course you would choose the one written by eyewitnesses. One of the questions that gets asked about the Bible, especially since the whole Da Vinci Code movie and book came out, is what about these Gnostic Gospels? I've heard on the History Channel or something that there's these other Gospels, Thomas, Peter, Mary. How come they didn't make it into the Bible? Well, let's go back to our Civil War analogy for a moment. The four Gospels in the Bible are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. They were disciples of Christ. Mark interviewed Peter, who was an eyewitness, and Luke says that he interviewed several eyewitnesses for his Gospel. How old were these books from when the events took place? Well, John was the last gospel written about 90 AD, and that was 60 years after Christ died on the cross. Mark was the earliest gospel, and some historians think that it was written as early as 45 AD. That is a mere 12 years after Jesus died on the cross. Let's compare that to the Gnostic gospels. Gnostic gospels were written between 150 and 300 years AD, which is 120 to 270 years after Christ died on the cross. Were they written by eyewitnesses like Thomas, Peter, and Mary? No, those were forged names. They were written by people who weren't there. It's not hard to see why the early church chose the gospels that they did. In fact, the Bible says that the resurrection of Christ was a public event seen by over 500 people at one time. Look what Paul says to this Roman official when he was being questioned. He says this, I'm sure all these events are familiar to you. They weren't done in a corner. In other words, everybody saw Jesus hanging on the cross in Jerusalem. Nobody disputes that. We all heard about him resurrecting back to life. These things were all done in public. Contrast that to other religious books. Muhammad, for example wrote the Quran based upon a personal vision that he had while alone in a cave. Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon based upon a personal vision he had while looking at some crystals in his hat. Two men, all alone, both books written based on personal visions. The Bible, not private, public. 
not fairy tale or myth, historical. The Bible is historically reliable. But just because the Bible is historically reliable, that doesn't mean it's the word of God, does it? I mean, how do you know that? Well, Jesus, to start, he believed the Bible was the word of God. He says the Old Testament and his words were inspired by God. And then Jesus' closest friend and follower, Peter, he says this about Paul's letters. He says some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters around to mean something different from what he meant, just as they do the other parts of Scripture. My point is an airtight case can be made that Jesus believed that the Bible you hold in your hand was inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. If you want to know what's true, don't turn on your TV, don't listen to your favorite teacher, don't read your favorite blog, go to God's inspired word. In fact, I would say to you this, consult the Bible, I got another one, consult the Bible before any other authority. Let me ask you, what is your source of wisdom and authority? Maybe for you it's self-help books. Do you know the self-help book industry is a $9.6 billion industry? Comedian Stephen Wright says that if anyone ever asks you where the self-help book section is, you should say, I can't tell you that. Defeats the purpose. Need to go help yourself, sorry. <laughs> but maybe for you, it's, it's not necessarily self-help books. Maybe for you, it's blogs or magazines. In fact, for this message, I read the most popular women's magazine. This was my devotion for this message, how devoted I was. I read the most popular women's magazine, and I read every single article in it from the beginning of time. I then calculated what each article was about. The magazine, no doubt you've heard of it, is Cosmo Self Martha World of Living. <laughs> and if you read this magazine, there's really only four articles in the entire magazine. The first article, 21% is what guys secretly think of your makeup. 21%. 24%, what he's thinking when you enter the room. Next one, 26%, the secret to getting any guy. And then the last one here, 29%, how to decode his body language. And if you read what these magazines are writing, the advice is completely wrong. I'm going to clear this up for you right now. Women, notebook, pen, I'm going to take you inside the male mind. Answer these questions. What guys secretly think of your makeup? What's the score? <laughs> There's a guy on third. Did he score or did he get thrown out? What's he thinking when you enter the room? What's the score? Is there a turnover, or do we just give the ball over on downs? I, I, I miss that. The secret to getting any guy? Know the score. <laughs> and then, of course, feed him as well. And then here's the last one here, and this last one is very subtle. How to decode his body language. This is very, very subtle. Here's a picture of him when his team is winning. Okay, that's what he looks like when his team is ahead. Here is a picture of him when his team is losing. Ahead. Behind. Ahead. Behind. Okay, I'll stop now. Let's bring both of them up. It's really subtle. There's about a one millimeter difference right here. <laughs> and that's actually how guys communicate about everything. We don't talk. 
We don't express our emotions, but if you just look right there, you're going to know exactly what we're thinking at any moment, okay? Now, guys, you're not off the hook. You have your own magazine as well. Your magazine is called Men's Journaling of GQ Self. And there are only three articles in this entire magazine, okay? 37% getting great abs. 34% getting killer abs. And 29% lose your gut and get super abs. Now, you might be saying, you know, I don't read those magazines as my source of truth. But what about this? Do you consult this before you do the Bible? I mean, I talk to Christians all the time who will admit, you know, I read more blogs than I do Bible. I spend way more time on social media than I ever do with God or thinking about God. And there's nothing wrong with blogs and social media, and there's nothing even wrong with some popular magazines. But don't base your views of truth on a blog. In fact, this may surprise you to hear me say this, but don't even base it upon what I say. I do my best every week to study the Bible to make sure what I'm saying is accurate. I have a holy fear of, of speaking in a way that's flippant or unprepared. But you ought to be reading the Bible for yourself. In Acts 17, when Paul goes to a city called Berea, he begins to teach about Jesus. And look at what it says the Bereans did. It says, And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to check up on Paul and Silas to see if what they were really teaching the truth. The Bereans were open-minded. But just because they were open-minded doesn't mean they didn't believe in absolute truth. Just because they were open-minded didn't mean they didn't believe that the Bible was God and God's inspired word. They checked up on what Paul was saying. And don't gloss over this word searched. It means they went through the whole Bible. They didn't just pick and choose their favorite verses. And this happens all the time these days. Where someone will say, you know, don't give me ten commandments, God. Give me eight. I like those eight. Those other two, I'm just going to try to explain away. Or don't give me a book that tells me I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. Give me a book that tells me I can do whatever I want. But if you just pick and choose certain verses to obey and then disregard the other ones, then how will you have a God who can ever contradict you? You won't. You will have a step for God. You will have a God of your own creation, and that is not a God you can have a real relationship with. That's why I want to urge you, read this book. This book has stood the test of time. It has been on the bestseller list for the last two or three hundred years. Show me any other book that can say that. It is a book that sells tens of millions of copies every single year. It has survived bannings and burnings. It has survived criticism and ridicule. Emperors and kings, princes and rulers have tried to keep this book from you. In fact, in 1536, a man named William Tinsdale was ordered to die by strangulation. After he was strangled to death, they took his lifeless body, they put it up on a stake, and they burned it. What was Tinsdale's crime? He had translated the Bible into English. As Tinsdale was being strangled to death, he used his last moment of breath and energy to cry out a prayer to God that the king of England's eyes would be opened. 
a prayer that was miraculously answered two years later when the king changed his mind and ordered a Bible translated into English, a Bible that was largely based on Tinsdale's work. Friends, men and women have died so that you can read this book. They have died so this book would be in a language that you could actually understand. Will you read it? I was sitting on the couch trying to read my Bible next to my son Micah, and he was playing Madden football on the Kindle. And I could hear the crowd noise every time he would score. And I found myself looking over, wanting to know the score <laughs> for a video game. Not even real people. I'm like, what has happened? Did you get an interception there? What's the score now? And that's when I realized that my puny little Bible cannot compete with the sensory stimulation being pumped out by video games and computer companies these days. I was trying to read and reflect, but what my eyes really wanted was for something to blow up, something to catch fire or start moving around. And I wonder if this is how it is for a lot of us. We subconsciously move from TV show to TV show, movie to movie, smartphone to tablet, just looking for something that will make our eyes go, wow. But all the while we're being externally stimulated. Our soul is going, excuse me, just because your nerve endings are on fire doesn't mean that I'm being nurtured or expanded. I actually wonder if this is the reason why a lot of people today make emotional decisions based on feelings. You know, when you read, you have to think. But when you just take in a steady stream of media, you don't have to think as much as you just kind of feel. And there's nothing wrong with feeling except for when it begins to dull your discernment and your ability to think. Because when that happens, people start to waffle on the most basic truths in life. Let me ask you, what is your foundation for life? What is your basis for truth? What will you teach your kids about dating, marriage, sex, sin, and who God is in their life? Whose voice will you listen to? I want to show you something from Michael Jr. He's a Christian comedian. This is pretty serious what he talks about here, but it illustrates this point really well. Take a look at the side screens. Yo, comedian Michael Jr. here. As you know, I just flat out enjoy doing comedy. But one of the things I love way more than that is being a dad. Not too long ago, I'm going through some video footage and I run into this video of my youngest daughter being born. Now, of course, I was there. I actually took the video but I had never really experienced it from this perspective before. Now look, we're in the hospital room, she's uh, sticky and she's baby and all that stuff and she's in the middle of crying. And then I speak up, I start talking to her and watch how she responds when she hears my voice. Okay, Hort, let me look. I'm right here. It's okay. It's okay. I'm right here. I'm right here. We're doing just fine. It's okay. It's okay. I'm right here. Right here. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay, baby. It's okay. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> so check it. A few minutes later, uh, the nurse starts working on her, puts her pamper on her, and uh, I'm not saying anything. And she actually starts to cry again. Then I speak up. She hears my voice and stops crying like again. 
but I want you to notice what else happens after I tell her that I love her. Portland, it's okay. It's okay. It's good. It's good. It's good. I'm right here. I'm right here. I am right here. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yeah, I'm right here. I'm right here. It's okay. It's okay. That's just phenomenal. <laughs> like, whoa. Here's the thing. We'll always have times where we're not as comfortable, probably even to the point of tears, where life is just heavy. The key thing to do in those moments is to be still and listen for the Father's voice because he is trying to talk to you. And I can tell you what he wants you to know is that he loves you. All you got to do is open your eyes. Psalm 46, verse 10. It says, be still and know that I am God. God wants to talk to you. He wants to speak into your life. He wants to encourage you. He wants to lift you up. He wants to convict you at times. But you've got to turn off all of the other electronics and media for a moment and be still and know that he is God. And the primary way that God wants to speak to you is through his word. And so as you leave today at your campus, we're going to have people at the door passing out a Bible reading plan for you. And I would encourage you to begin to read this book on your own. This book isn't like any other book. You may say, well, I don't really like to read. I don't get into that. This book is living. It's active. There are times when you'll be reading it and it's like just jumping off the page at you and you go, that's exactly what I needed for this day. And you think, how did you know, God? How did you know the wisdom that I needed? the encouragement that I needed or the guidance I needed just in that moment, and God will speak to you through his word. Let the Father's voice be the voice of truth in your life. Let the Father's voice be the voice that you listen to above all other voices. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Hey folks, Ground Zero Summer Takeover kicks off this week for junior high students. If you have a junior high student, if you are a junior high student, really the, one of the best events we do every single year. It's going to be fantastic. want to invite you back for that. And then next weekend is it's hard to believe that it's not about how good I am. So many people think, you know what, i got to be better. i got to be good. How could God ever accept me? It's going to be a great message uh, for a lot of you next weekend. Let's pray together. God, we live in a world today where I think never before has it been more relevant to ask the question about absolute truth and who gets to decide what's true. And God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope that we submit our lives to you and that you are the one who gets to determine what's true and what's not and what's right and what's wrong. And so, God, right now in this moment, we submit ourselves to you. We submit our thoughts and our opinions and our beliefs to you. And, God, I pray for a person here or anyone here who maybe doesn't read the Bible much or hasn't read the Bible much. I pray that this week would be a real spiritual moment in their life. That as they begin to read your word, that you would speak into their life, that you would encourage them, that you would give them exactly what they needed to hear for this moment. And that they would develop a love of knowing you and reading your word every day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey, if you need prayer, come on down front. Otherwise, have a great day, everybody.